I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And this is the Christmas episode of The Disorder Show, the podcast which my husband in his Christmas gift described it to me recently as, yeah, it's surprisingly good. Thank you. (laughs) Is that the worst compliment of all time? This is the Surprisingly Good podcast. For this special Christmas episode, we were thinking of mixing it up, not hearing our usual disorder music, which you might be surprised to learn is called These Spreadsheets Are Making Me Sick. Instead, we're going to hear the much more orderly Patapan performed by Evoke, a London-based vocal ensemble founded and directed by Victoria Ely. Lovely, Jason. That's a wonderful Christmas spirit. And in the same vein, this episode is not going to have a guest. It's going to be a slightly more lighthearted look back on some of the highlights of the podcast this year. We also have a few questions from listeners that we are going to try to answer. And then finally, we're going to be chatting about how do we resurrect that spirit of Christmas and apply it to all these murky challenges around the world today. So here we go. Alex, do you have any fun plans for Christmas? Drinking, sleeping. Not doing any homework with my kids, watching some NFL. I'm not cooking a turkey this year. I am going to cook some venison chili because we did turkey at Thanksgiving. And last year, when I hosted my in-laws for Christmas, I was roasting the turkey. I had everything planned. The turkey was in the oven. The potatoes were roasting. The Brussels sprouts were all prepared. And at 12 o'clock, all I needed to do was open the oven, peel back the foil from the turkey, and allow the skin to crisp up. And the oven was cold. And I let out this primordial scream. What the effing has happened? And my husband looked at me and he went, oh, I may have pressed a button. And he had inadvertently turned off the turkey about two hours into cooking. I think that's grounds for divorce, Alex. That's That's called a fault divorce in the state of Virginia. So this year I am not doing turkey. I am doing venison chili. This story resonates a little bit too much with me because it's two years going now that I've done Thanksgiving here in London. Right. Both times... The turkey appeared to be done early. It hit the temperature of 67, 68 Celsius, which is like the 160, 170 Fahrenheit that it needs to be. Okay. I took it out. It's quote unquote done, but I stupidly didn't cut into it to Uh like actually taste the meat or whatever because my mother is so good at this. She's like, you know, you don't even need to do that. And It wasn't actually done. So I took it out. And then when we were finally ready to eat it, it wasn't done. And we had to put it back in and has to heat up. And then, you know, the vegetables were served a half hour before the turkey. You know, I don't want to go through that again. So I've said never again. It's a difficult thing to do. It's really difficult to get a Christmas lunch. Listeners, the 
background to this podcast was I wrote the book, Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder, and I felt that although Libya was a microcosm for the disorder, there were these other microcosms, the climate change and tax havens and NATO and all those things you hear us droning on about. And I knew that I needed to have a co-host to go on this journey with. And it was a friend who put me in touch with Alex, particularly a friend that you might have heard on this podcast, Arthur Snell. And I'm really, really glad he did because we're able to come at these things from so many different perspectives. And I've really enjoyed working with Alex. She's ordered the disorder of my 2023. Yes. So coming on the podcast is for me an escape from the disorder that largely prevails in my house. And it's been great fun working with you on this podcast, Jason. I will acknowledge that behind the scenes, there have been a few little bumps on the road, but I think we've got better and better. And I really love being on the podcast because as some of the listeners who followed me on Twitter and ever since I resigned from the Foreign Office have known, I've gradually been learning to speak with my own voice and see with my own eyes. And where I left the Foreign Office because I began to see just how dishonest Brexit was, and then I began to see just how that dishonesty was pervading all aspects of British politics right now, I'm sort of looking anew with my own eyes at what's going on at the world as a whole. And this podcast was both a chance to chat these things over with my new friend, Jason, but also to hear from all these fantastic experts who give their perspectives. And that's just been brilliant. I've learned so much. And I have to say, it's really made a big difference in the way that I experience my life because sometimes I'm reading something and I'm like, oh, I'd love to know more about this. We should do a podcast about this related topic. Or I'm having a conversation about disinformation and conspiracy theories. And then I have an idea. This is like how Plato says that there was the noble lie and we need to lie to people to get them to fight for the city is like disinformation saying things that are false to get people to do what the leaders or the rulers want? Is there a philosophical underpinning? Oh, why don't we reach out to some experts in medieval Aristotelian philosophy, have them on our (laughs) podcast? So literally, my mind just goes in all these directions that I was more constrained before this opportunity, and I'm just loving that part. So you definitely occupy a higher intellectual realm than I do. That is certainly the case. In fact, a higher intellectual realm than most podcasters I offer. You don't think that most politics podcasts talk about (laughs) Ibn Rushd's double truth theorem and how it relates (laughs) to Russian trolls? Whenever I see Russian trolls saying that Obama was born in Kenya, I think double truth theorem. And particularly when I see things like Jewish space lasers or great replacement theory, it was the actual truth. I go instantly to Ibn Rushd double truth theorem. As we all do, Jason, as we all do. But the other thing I've really enjoyed about the podcast, and actually, since we have listeners here, please suggest to us people who you would like us to invite on the podcast 
So I'm quite pleased with how we've managed to get so many great people. I mean, Anne Applebaum, Corey Sharkey, Timothy Garton Ash, Jonathan Powell. I mean, we've had so many great guests. And that was in the beginning before they had heard of it. I find what's interesting now is when you ask them, they're like, oh, I already listened to it. That's nice. Thank you for listening. Yes, so thank you, everybody here for listening. We really, really appreciate the support. Yes, ordering the disorder is a collective endeavor. So, Alex, what have been your favorite moments of the pod? Various uh, things that have come up that you found amusing or droll in some way? Highlights for me have been Laura Thornton talking about election denialism as the new black. This is my big thing for 2024. If 2023 has been about conflicts and old conflicts and historic conflicts and does aggression pay, I think 2024 is going to be about elections and whether populism is going to spread. In 2024, over 4 billion people, people living in countries which collectively add up to 4 billion people on the planet are going to be taking part in elections. Russia, India, Mexico, the US, the UK, for the European Parliament. And I think a huge issue is going to be migration. We have the risk of a populist backlash across all these elections, and I'm sure we're going to get to Trump. So Laura Thornton talking about election denialism as the new black, and whether our current political systems still serve us in the 21st century. Another issue looking forward to 2024 is both the EU and NATO are going to be taking very difficult decisions about whether or not to enlarge, to let in Ukraine, Georgia, and other aspirant nations. And we had Kurt Volker, the former U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine and the former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, talking about how absolutely essential it is that NATO doesn't duck this choice at its 75th anniversary summit in Washington next summer. We were talking about putting a ring on it. They need to confirm that Ukraine will have longer-term security. And then my last favorite quote is one from you, Jason. So sensitive audience alert. My favorite quote is when you said, why did I choose to become a fucking expert when experts have become discredited? Just at the time when people don't like experts. So Jason, those are my favorite quotes, but you're the expert here. So what were your favorite episodes? You're right. Being able to elicit the name Tom fucking scholar as the expert that the Brexiteers dismissed, <laughs> that has to be my favorite moment of the whole pod. Because I remember sitting in my room in New Jersey realizing these crazy Brexiteers, they are out to get a man whose name is Tom Scholar. He was destined to be the permanent undersecretary of the expert expertariat. <laughs> and they just demonized him. And then hearing Jonathan Powell talking about getting in an unmarked car to go see Martin McGuinness in West Belfast, hearing Corey Shackey talking about her mom and how she can understand that maybe we should get our NATO allies to pay more money, but then the discourse is manipulated against her. 
those things just resound in my ears. And I just feel really lucky that we get to have these chatty everyday conversations with people who have been in the room and they've done the doing on these major issues. And it's really fun. All right, Jason. So I've given a couple of snippets looking ahead to 2024. For me, it's the swath of elections, the challenge of climate change, whether we risk getting bogged down in Ukraine and how mass migration is going to play into all these elections. We've only just tiptoed around the massive, massive orange pumpkin in the room, which is Donald Trump. Tell me, is it going to happen in 2024? Is the pumpkin returning? Alex, that's exactly right. 2024, not only for me in my exile, but on the global level, it will be defined by whether the orange orangutan gets into office or not. Everything that will happen afterward vis-a-vis migration and climate and Ukraine and Israel-Palestine and global ordering and China will all depend on this. There's just no debate about that. I want to introduce the way in which I am increasingly looking at it. I look at it from the perspective of gambling. There are unlikely events that happen all the time. Just because an event is only two and a half percent to happen doesn't mean that if you run the trial three or four or five times that it doesn't happen, it might happen. And the key analysis here is that various events make the unlikely event either more or less likely. And that is what's crucial. So let's say you're gambling on the Super Bowl and it's the Eagles playing the Ravens and you learn that Dallas Goddard, the tight end, is injured. Now you're thinking it's much, much less likely and I would only ascribe X percentage. So we can break down the chances of the orange orangutan getting into office and we can cite the key factors here that make it more and less likely. One is price at the pump of gas in America and inflation. Then, unfortunately, the Ukraine war. The Ukraine war, if there is no noticeable progress, which very may well be the case, particularly because Speaker Johnson is going to be starving the Ukrainians of arms, that is going to be hurting Biden. If the Israel-Palestine thing develops in a way whereby there's a real fight between the Biden administration and Netanyahu, stupidly, some pro-Israel Democrats will defect and not support Biden. So I think that these are the key indicators that we can be looking at. I don't think it's an it's the economy stupid election, Alex. The economy is going to be a factor. Israel, Palestine, and Ukraine are going to be a factor. But there could easily be a black swan event. And one of the things that I sometimes wake up at 4 a.m. thinking about, I'm sure that there are cards that we could play that decrease the chance of a Trump victory, and yet people do not play them. And one of the ones that I'm going to be, you're going to be hearing about me about this, Alex, in the 2024 pod is the vice presidential selection for Biden. I would like him to pick a non-Trump Republican, like a national unity style approach. I don't understand how we could lose the election. I think, and I'm sorry, this sounds a little unkind of me to say so. I think your assessment reflects an East Coast liberal-leaning perspective. I think people aren't going to vote based on the situation in Ukraine or the situation in Israel-Palestine. It may tweak a few votes here and there. They're going to vote on immigration. 
border control, abortion, the age of Biden, all sorts of different factors. It's not going to be about Ukraine and these high-minded issues. It's going to be on really dirty turf war. And in the UK, it's going to be about the European Court of Human Rights and refugees and illegal immigrants. And, and it's going to be very, very ugly. I agree with that. Those issues are, are going to be more meaningful than even the price at the pump issues. But are they swing issues in the sense of can they play out further than they have already played out? So that's a fair question. I mean, I do feel in the UK, most people have made their minds up already about the Conservative Party in its current incarnation. And so all the new examples are just going to confirm people's apathy about that. But if migrant flows hugely spike up during the summer, you may find shy Tories or closet Tories who say, you know what? We're really bothered about this. And there may be an underlying current. You're so right. If there was all of a sudden one of these quote-unquote caravans at the U.S.-Mexico border, and Biden maybe makes a misstep in a debate on that issue, could be bad. Could be bad. One of the things that we are going to do today that we haven't done so far, we hope to do more so, is to answer some listeners' questions. So I've solicited them in a previous episode, and now we're going to select some of the best ones. And guess what? I'm surprising Alex because she does not check the disordershow at gmail.com email. So if you ever want to complain, tease, make fun of Alex, you can just write George and I. And we could surprise her with it. Jason, I have broad shoulders. You can tease and challenge me directly. <laughs> I do not have universal knowledge. So far away. Hit me with the questions, Jason. Wow, this is a great one. It comes from York. It says, we don't hear much about the stands in Central Asia. Would the hosts comment on the strategic significance of these countries? particularly vis-a-vis Russia and China, and what will the West's strategy be towards them? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Alex, the stands. The stands. I'm immediately thinking of that British TV series, The Diplomats, that was set in a British embassy in a fictional stand country. I think it was called Tajbekistan. And it was a (laughs) parody of a British embassy grappling with royal visits and human rights abuses and environmental issues in this fictional country. And when the episode launched on the BBC, all the countries in the region launched such a cascade of formal diplomatic protests to the Foreign Office and the British government that sadly this magnificent series was cancelled after only three episodes. On a more serious note... They are a bridge between Europe and Asia, and they have been the arena of the great game geopolitically in the 19th century. And immediately after 9-11, a whole lot of new attention was paid to them because they were an access way into Afghanistan. And the US based a lot of its operations from neighboring countries into Afghanistan, from those stands. And there was quite a lot of concern that they were 
overlooking concerns about human rights abuses in order to base their military operations from there. I think it remains a part of the world that is less well understood. It is less focused on diplomatically. Certainly when I was based in Georgia, the stands were always kind of the third region down on the list in the department for Eastern Europe and Central Asia. It was Russia, then it was the Eastern Partnership countries, and then it was the stands, and they were always third on the list. Your questioner, I think, has raised the very good suggestion we should have an episode on the stands. All of which is to say, amazing diplomatic job dodging the question there. <laughs> hey, I'm, it was a good I diplomat. I will take this one head time. on, Alex, and say <laughs> it isn't really a great game again, and we shouldn't be trying to outcompete Russia or China in the stands. That's old school chessboard thinking, you know what I mean? Like we need to flip a given regime to more support America. Rather, if they can be more prosperous and, you know, Uzbekistan has kind of gradually kicked the Islamist insurgency in the Fergana Valley, that's good. And if we can have more trade with them and incrementally they're more a part of the global economy and they can be more orderers than disorderers, it's good. I think that these countries, even ones that are less known like Kyrgyzstan, they are moving in the right direction and we we just need to engage with them. Exactly. Next question, Alex. A colleague of mine from the State Department who listens to literally almost every episode, he wrote me, yeah, Jason, thanks uh, for asking for listeners' questions. I liked how you and David talked about Israeli and Ukrainian historical perspectives and you kind of gave a nod to the Palestinian historical perspective, but I didn't feel that you fleshed it out in the depth required. And I will do a mea culpa here. Yes, the episode was running a little long. We didn't get to focus on Palestinian historical perspectives playing into the current Israel-Gaza war. So before tossing it to Alex, I want to go. I think that what isn't covered enough in the quote unquote mainstream media is the way in which the Palestinians' fear and trauma is about forced eviction from their homes and forced displacement. Stupidly, the Israeli military strategy plays directly into forced eviction from their homes and forced displacement. I mean, there are many Israeli scholars as well as military generals who are well aware that this is the Palestinian historical narrative. And the one thing that people don't want to be told is you have to evacuate your homes and go there and then we're going to bomb it. Oh, but we'll let you back. Because in 1948, for a range of reasons, different towns were either forcibly evicted or there was the Darussin massacre causing other people to leave. And this is a really important point of the Palestinian historical narrative. And that is a dimension that really needs to be understood. I mean, we need to grapple with all of the resonances of this tremendous trauma and all the implications that it's have. So I toss that over to you, Alex. I think one of the biggest challenges is when does history begin? Because some will say, well, Hamas triggered this conflict and we have to eliminate Hamas and there would not be this devastating assault on Gaza if Hamas hadn't done what it did. But if you're a Palestinian, your historical timeline begins a little bit earlier than that. Maybe it begins in 1948 when Israel was created. But if you're a Jewish Israeli, your history goes back thousands of years of historical persecution. And if you're a religious Jewish Israeli, it goes back to the first millennia BC 
with the first and second temple periods. Exactly. That's what I mean. So when does history begin? And so we are, listeners, going to get to an end of this episode where we talk about how do we bring peoples together? How do we create that Christmas spirit of learning to put history behind us? You can sometimes have too much history where all you do is relive past wrongs, past injustices, and that's just not going to get us anywhere. The reality is, is that both sides have suffered wrongs. Both sides have legitimate grievances and both sides have a case to make for why they have a claim on that land. So they can either fight it to death or they can find a way to share that land. But history is not going to provide that answer because where does history begin? So to stick with Israel-Palestine, I was really happy to read this question from Dawn Renfro, MD. She writes from Scotland, Dear Jason, I enjoyed very much your latest episode with David. What was missing perhaps was an analysis of other aspects of Israeli military strategy in Gaza. I understand that Hamas uses hospital, etc. as human shields. However, Israel gives a very distinct impression of indiscriminate, disproportionate bombing. It gives the impression of perpetrating war crimes on a massive scale, as well as imposing unspeakable terror and suffering on innocent civilians. It appears to be self-defeating and damaging. One important way in which it is damaging is that it weakens the West's arguments against such actions in other parts of the world, such as Ukraine. I am certain that the West is trying to restrain Israel behind the scenes. Is there more which the West could do in this regard? Is there any advantage, quote unquote, militarily from what appears to be a scorched earth policy? What a smart and profound and yet depressing, depressing, bad, bad, mad, mad, sad, sad question. Alex. I think she put it absolutely perfectly. I think we're all struggling in a moral maze to find the clarity here. And I think she phrased her question so delicately because she understands that Israel has legitimate security concerns. But the question is, is the current approach just going to fuel a devastating cycle of hatred and destruction? I personally believe that the US and the UK should have supported the call for a ceasefire at the UN Security Council when they had a chance to vote on it in response to an urgent appeal by the UN Secretary General. Article 99. And to be clear, it's not because I'm completely naive that suddenly peace is going to break out when the all-powerful UN Security Council says so. I also completely understand why the US and the UK were concerned that the resolution failed to condemn the actions by Hamas. I understand that some of those who voted in favor of the resolution are doing so to put the US on the spot and for malign reasons. Nevertheless, if you are on the body charged with maintaining international peace and security, if you are a permanent five member, If you genuinely have concerns, as I believe the US and the UK do, about the rising death toll in Gaza and some aspects of Israel's approach to this conflict, you should call for a ceasefire. 
The level of death and destruction in Gaza is beyond anything. They should have voted in support and they could have used an explanation of vote to say, we are voting in support of this resolution for these reasons, even though we feel it's deficient in these ways and we believe Israel has a right to self-defense. They could have used that. Well, this is a nice opportunity for us to disagree agreeably. I don't think that the US or UK or even France should have voted for the ceasefire resolution unless it contained a solution for the post-war governance of Gaza. Therefore, merely saying a ceasefire is no solution. I would love to see a UN resolution which says we need to have a ceasefire now and we need a condominium of Arab states to come in and do some administration of Gaza. Having merely a ceasefire with no plans for the day after, it's not just that it's not realistic, it seems so pie in the sky that it will put the Israelis in a position, well, if we're violating even the international law about the ceasefire, then we might as well just, I don't know, kill more people or evict more people from their homes. In other words, I think it has to have an actual solution attached to it, but we digress. I want to get at how I read Dawn's question because she mentions Ukraine. And I'm going to tell you, Dawn, you really channeled something that I feel and that I've always felt about the Israeli right. The Israeli right makes a lot of the West, but particularly diaspora Jews, look bad. In addition to making them look bad, they cause issues of how we are perceived abroad. And just like W. Bush made Americans look bad in Iraq, Netanyahu threatens the West's moral position on so many issues, not only Ukraine, but really actually about climate change and tax havens and whatever, because you can just say, hey, look, you guys have been arming Netanyahu. How dare you tell us to not fight in Yemen? How can you tell us to curb our carbon emissions? Because you polluted all throughout the late 19th century with your coal factories. It opens the door wide open to all sorts of hypocrisy. And Dawn is exactly right. I don't have any answers here. But when she says, is there more the West could be doing to restrain Israel behind the scenes? I think the answer is no. I imagine that Biden is doing everything possible. The problem is that Congress isn't with Biden. Sunak is like a lame duck anyway. And the Europeans are divided between like a Germany block on the one hand, and then a Spanish, Irish, Portuguese block on the other. In other words, the Europeans are internally divided about this issue. So I would like to see a resolution which postulates a ceasefire, but an actual solution with the post-war governance of Gaza. All right, so Jason, I've talked quite a lot about some of the big stories I think are going to happen in 2024. But what else should we be looking for in 2024? I have a positive prediction for 2024, Alex. As an outsider's insider, I think I can see the British electoral system, maybe with some of the clarity that you brought to your analysis of the Trump election, which I think hit on the bigger picture issues better than what I said did. And what I see is an electoral blowout with Starmer and Rayner cleaning up. I don't want to just cheerlead for them. I think it's going to happen. And what we're going to be surprised by is the extent to which 
they do awesome. The pound is going to get strong. The inflation is going to come down. The housing market is going to get better. The relationship between the EU and UK is going to improve. There's going to be more investment in industry, in the Midlands, in the North. I am long-term bullish on Britain. That's very positive. I do think that the Conservatives will suffer a shellacking, but I don't think it's going to be an easy ride for Labour. There are so many poison pills being left for them by the of current course, government. Of course, of course. But I feel like the poison pill bit is covered. People don't necessarily realize when these guys come in and we have competent leadership for the first time in 13 years, although Cameron was reasonably competent, but when we have competent leadership certainly for the first time since 2017, it's going to have an unlocking effect on investment and on getting things done. And I'm kind of excited, whereas I don't feel that excited, sadly, about a Biden second term. And I just, I want to, given the fact that this is a British podcast and British Christmas, I feel like a lot of Britons don't see how exciting it might be for the fact that like Westminster really works. Starmer has been attacked, but he attacks back. There's like a feedback loop going on here, which may lead to a better future. It's really kind of invigorating. That's great. Sometimes it takes somebody from the outside looking at our own societies to say, actually, you have more strengths and positive things going on than you realize. We all beat up on our own countries. So thank you. I have two stories for Under the Radar coming up in 2024. The first one is just at the end of COP28, the Climate Change Summit, which amazingly did manage at the very last hour to come up with an agreement to transition away from fossil fuel. But they also decided that next year's summit will be hosted by Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, one of the biggest oil and gas producers who has become even more important as countries try to transition away from Russian oil and gas. So yet again, COP is going to be hosted by a country that is actually a major oil and gas producer itself. The other significant thing about COP's decision to give the next summit to Azerbaijan is that will give a huge platform for Azerbaijan on the international stage. And because most countries send prime ministers or foreign ministers there, it's effectively a huge diplomatic recognition of what is actually a very authoritarian state and also one that just seized by force the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh, displacing tens of thousands of Armenians from that territory. So that is quite a diplomatic coup for Azerbaijan. My other under-the-radar story is actually quite a positive one, and it really amazes me it hasn't had much coverage in the press, but maybe that's because Ukraine and the Middle East are just so dominant right now. And that is that in Myanmar, an alliance of ethnic minority armed groups and the pro-democracy People's Defense Force have been launching an amazing offensive against the military junta in Myanmar and making astonishing progress. Since October, they've seized over 200 military posts and four crossing points that control trade with China. And just in the middle of December, we learned that China has actually started to broker peace talks 
between the Myanmar military regime and some of these opposition forces. Now, this is something that is hugely significant. This has been a brutal military regime whose rule has gone unchallenged for decades. And this is the first sign that the military junta is feeling the pressure and maybe wobbling. So that's another really huge story to watch in 2024. All right, just another little snippet that I think would be nice for this podcast is many people try and have some kind of escape route and escape valve to take their mind off the state of the world or to help them understand the state of the world a little bit better. My personal hobby, it may sound a bit nerdy, is I really like doing jigsaws over the holidays because it absorbs me completely and I do not think about anything else. I tune out everything when I'm doing a jigsaw puzzle. But what about you, Jason? Well, that's a really good escape valve, Alex, and I think it's generational here. My folks might also like a really nice jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, I am older than you. Thanks for the reminder. Something something about being from this generation, I just can't can't see myself doing a, a jigsaw puzzle. But maybe if I have kids. Mine is maybe less of an escape valve and more of an escape route. I like a cathartic element. So I'm gonna do a little monologue here about a show that has completely changed my life. This show is available on Netflix in the UK and US. So it's like easy for you to access. This show that I'm speaking of that's changed my life is Fauda. They say that life imitates art, but oh my God, Alex, when the conflict started, I was like, I have to rewatch season three because it has the Israeli hostages who are taken to Gaza. And season four contains Israeli overreactions, human rights abuses, needless killing of Palestinian civilians, the threat of regional escalation, the role of the Shabak and the Mossad in misleading and manipulating Palestinian would-be informants, and all the moral maze aspects of these developments. But as I've been watching it again, there's something that rings so true to me. It's the way in which both sides are trapped in the conflict. What we're witnessing in Israel-Palestine is more of a Greek tragedy than a regular geopolitical event. There are no neutral arbiters, and each outrage only provokes an even worse future outrage in a cycle. And that this pulls at the essence of us as human communities. And watching Fauda can teach us the emotional and human dynamics, which might be important than mastering medieval Islamic theology or even humanitarian law. What we're faced with is a way of how to break the cycle of violence. And that's what the enduring disorder is about. So watching Fauda, I think, can sum up these dynamics. And to finally get out of this mess, Alex, we're going to need to have spiritual growth. So this leads us into the question of Christmas. Christmas, for me, has always held out a prospect of great hope. And this is the hope of spiritual growth, not only for us as individuals, but as the human race. So after the break, how can we get the Christmas spirit into modern diplomacy?
Okay, so to end this episode, how do we generate that Christmas spirit? We have to find a way to help parties to a conflict see the other side as fellow human beings with the same emotions. If you prick us, do we not bleed? And to understand where they are coming from, put themselves in their shoes. Now, I was really sad to hear that just before Christmas, in early December, one of the organizations that used to try and bring Palestinians and Israeli youth together to form friendships, to learn about each other, an organization called Hands of Peace, they have just announced their closure. They do not have enough funds to keep going. And here's the ultimate kicker in this story. It's so awful. But one of the alumnus from that program, someone called Nama Levy, is a hostage in Gaza. So I think it's not inappropriate that we come back again to Israel and Palestine. But even despite all the current conflict and the awful story of the hostages, there are still many organizations and many actors on either side of the conflict whose voices are currently being drowned out, who do still believe in finding peace, who do still feel the humanity in each other. They do still see that humanity. And we have to empower those voices. When I think of the Christmas spirit, I want to challenge our diplomats, as well as everyone just in their ordinary lives, to see the issues of the day through the eyes of their worst opponents. Imagine being a Trump supporter from Iowa. How does he see you? How does he see these issues? I just think that we owe it to ourselves with all the filter bubble stuff going on and all the difficulty that people have getting alternative viewpoints just to really empathize with the other party's narrative, even if they're hateful, even if they're quote unquote crazy, just to take the time and try to see the issues from their perspective. My other Christmas point, and I think Jesus has a lot of great arguments, and I'm very, very happy that we're celebrating his birthday, is you just shouldn't take things for granted. And it is a miracle that we are here now and that we enjoy certain kinds of abundance and certain kinds of solidarity. Yes, many people are suffering. But there really is so much to be thankful for. And I I think this is a crucial thing to really talk about, that if you study a lot of what monotheism is about is gratitude and that your relationship to God is to be grateful, alhamdulillah, and that this point is really, really important for me about Christmas, that if everyone was a little bit more grateful and not saying, oh, but I want my tax cut or we have to have more than them. I think that we might be in a better place if people embodied more, not only the notion of Christmas spirit and Christian charity, but of just gratitude. We're ending this Christmas episode, actually coming back to what Christmas is all about. So I want to thank you, Jason, for inviting me to be part of this journey of learning and discovery with you on the podcast. I want to thank our producer, George, who sits quietly behind the scenes and despite our imprecations, will not say hello, but is smiling as I record this and wishing all of you a happy Christmas. And I want to wish a really happy Christmas to all our listeners. Eat your turkey, eat your mince pies, 
drink a little. But yes, remember that Christmas spirit and try and put yourself in the shoes of the other side. And I will certainly try to do that. And for 2024, we will try to keep this podcast surprisingly good. Happy Christmas, everyone. Please follow us in 2024. Tap follow wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Neil Fern, and I will just say Merry Christmas and a very, very orderly New Year to everyone. On that note, I was thinking of finishing off the episode by playing something from my favorite London-based vocal ensemble, Evoke. My good friends from Oxford, James Flowell and Ellie Parks, sing in this choir, which is directed by Victoria Ely. I went to their Christmas concert, and I just wanted to share with you their very special rendition of Jingle Bells. Hey, does she do the snow?